Well, tonight is really special because uh, the gentleman that I'm going to introduce, I know him personally and professionally. Uh, Eric Bruton is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, not only do we go to church here, but <clears throat> we share a lot of things in common. Eric is now a judge. But I met him when he was just a regular lawyer like me a long time ago. Um, he is currently a judge in the state court of Cobb County since October of 2010. He is deeply concerned and committed to our community. Um, he wants to see everybody succeed in life. He has compassion, he has mercy, but he has to exercise justice, and he does both. Um, he wants to see people, and you'll hear his story about the court that he runs, that are in addiction, live a productive and abundant and impactful life. He wants to see them get right so they can live a life that God has created them to be. Um, he is now running our DUI accountability court, where the premise of the court is to provide instruction, counseling, so that the court's graduates can live transformed lives of sobriety. Um, he was a practicing lawyer for 27 years became, before he became a judge as a civil attorney, did a lot of litigation. He has a lot of experience. For 35 years, those of you that know Young Life, he has been a volunteer leader at Walton High School's Young Life program, 35 years. For 30 years, he's also been a student leader here in this ministry of this church because he's just actively involved in the community and just believes about giving back. He's been on over 20 mission trips with this church, and I am so proud to call Eric Brute not only my colleague but my dear friend. So, Eric, I'm going to pray for you, and then I'm going to let you introduce Darcy, and then the show will be yours. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, Lord, for calling Eric into the ministry that you have through not only young life and student ministry, but as a judge, Father. Uh, because his role as a believer continues when he's on the bench. And I just thank you for the passion that you've given him to point people in the right direction, to offer them hope and encouragement, to challenge them. Father, we just pray now that you'll speak through him in a mighty way, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, Eric. All right. Well, I appreciate, appreciate y'all having John inviting us to come up. We... Um, like I said, we, I run a DUI court. We call it a DUI court. It's an accountability court. And we're going to explain a little bit to you about what that's about uh, today. And, and I really loved what Fair shared with us about, about Peter and what Christ sees. You know, Christ sees about who we can be and who we were made to be. And that's kind of what we try to do in the DUI court. We look at the people that come in front of us, and we see them who they can become, not uh, not. You know, not what their past, what they may think of their past, but what they can think of their future. And it's very important to us that we instill a vision in them that they can be just outstanding citizens, that their families can be the, the type of families they've always wanted to grow up in, that they can uh, keep, their, keep their jobs and just do the things they want to do in life, that they were created special by God and that they were created to, to live uh, in a way that... Uh, that they could be prosperous and good. And so it's a court that really is about, we like to use the word transform, transforming lives and transforming families. And you'll see a little bit of that tonight when we talk. Before we go any further, I want to introduce Darcy K. Mal. Come on up, Darcy. We'll kind of, we're going to kind of tag team up here a little bit because she's a lot better at this than I am. So Darcy has a tremendous amount of experience um, in the accountability court. She is the coordinator. So kind of the way this works is I'm the judge, but she kind of runs everything. And so, uh, and we, we have a staff of an assistant coordinator, 
or, or we call her a case manager too, I guess. And Tiffany would have loved to have come tonight too. And, and John knows Tiffany real well. And she and, and, and Darcy um, head up the court. And um, Darcy has a lot of experience in addiction counseling, a lot of experience in, in just in the accountability court realm. I, I, Darcy, I just want you to share just a little bit about who you are and, and, um, and why you enjoy the accountability court so much because she has a great vision for what we do. So, so I was, um, I've been in criminal justice or in this line of work for 18 years now, hoping that doesn't age me too much. Um, so my first uh, caseload as a probation officer was in the drug court program, so that's really where um, I had fallen in love with the ability to work with clients. Um, but instead of just kind of give them a list of things to do and send them on their way, I was able to really watch their lives, like the judge said, transform. I was really able to watch um, them come to fruition. Um, I was able to watch their families come back together, the marriages are restored, they get their children back um, uh, into their custody. And so I really kind of spent my entire career in this line of work uh, because I do love it so much. So I uh, was originally born and raised in California. got my education out there um, and then transplanted to Georgia in 2010 and I've been with the DUI court the whole time so I started with DUI court in 2010 and I've not ever left so hopefully you don't give me the boot anytime soon because I don't know what else I would do that's, that's all I've done so well Darcy does an incredible job and she is actually very well thought of in our in, throughout the state. Actually, she received a statewide award for Coordinator of the Year a couple of years ago. And, and the the accountability courts in Georgia, uh, we have drug courts that kind of do what we do also for people that have drug addictions. We have a veterans court that um, that um, you have to be a veteran to be in it, and it's really dealing with mostly. I think they do a lot with PTSD and. As a, as a result of some of the trauma they face in the military, often they develop addictions and alcohol and drugs. And so there's a special court that does that and superior court as well as a drug court. We uh, have a mental health court that does the same thing, recognizing that you may not realize, but our prisons have become mental health providers. And so many people in our prisons are uh, with mental health issues, and, and a mental health court does the same type of thing where they can get them out of jail and get them to the treatment that they need. And so we, we'll go to Athens in a couple of weeks uh, for um, statewide, um, so a statewide training, which we do every year. We'll fill every hotel in Athens. Uh, we'll fill the Classic Center there. There's probably, how many people go to that conference? I think they're expecting 1,500. Yeah. So Darcy was named coordinator of the year out of a conference that big, so it's kind of a big deal. And Tiffany. So. And yeah, one. Tiffany as well, and actually, and our circuit defender. And then, don't tell the secret, we have another winner this year. But yeah, we'll yeah, that's right. But it's not me. It's uh, <laughs> it's the uh, it's uh, our deputy sheriff who also is assigned to us. And we'll talk a little bit more about the team that we have that works in the program. Um, one thing I thought we would start, if we, we can still get to work, we we had a kind of an interesting, a, a kind of a special thing that happened in the DUI court about six months ago, and Eleven Alive reported on this, and so we're going to. Let's give you a little bit of a taste of what we do, if we can get that to come up. Um, you have to watch. Yes. 
should be able to frustrate that. Please, the DUI court is designed to give people who have been charged with multiple DUIs a second chance while also holding them This afternoon, our Joe Hankey was there as one of the court's recent graduates. Not only realized the impact of his second chance, but achieved a lifelong dream. I'm John William Pruitt. I'm Jacob William Pruitt. Being sworn in to practice law in Georgia seemed impossible for Jacob Pruitt several years ago. But Tuesday, it became a reality. Inside Cobb County's DUI court, Judge Eric Bruton, who oversees the court, swore in Pruitt. It took place at the latest DUI court graduation ceremony, fitting as Pruitt is a previous DUI court graduate himself. Nobody graduates from law school and thinks that a year later they're going to have two DUIs. After finishing law school at Georgia State in 2016, Pruitt hit a roadblock. A drinking problem he used to cope with stress in school and life led to two DUIs in Cobb County in a matter of months in 2017. His attorney, though, struck a plea deal where Pruitt agreed to enter DUI court. And I decided that I would take everything <coughs> the program had to offer me. Pruitt says in the program he found the person he was before his alcohol addiction. DUI court in Cobb County is for people who have been charged with two DUIs in 10 years or three or more DUIs in their lifetime. Since October 2008, 479 people have graduated from the program, and the average blood alcohol level of participants when arrested, 0.207, more than double the legal limit. Everybody deserves a second chance. Everybody does. And that's what we're about in this court. Judge Bruton says in the program, eligible participants receive less jail time, but enroll in two years of intense counseling, education on life and decision-making skills, weekly drug and alcohol testing, as well as supervision and treatment to reach sobriety. When they live a civil life, the first thing that happens is public safety is increased because they're no longer down the roads uh, and under influence of alcohol. But secondly, uh, and this is probably the most rewarding part of it, for us is that their lives are restored. For Pruitt, after his DUI arrest, becoming a lawyer appeared to be a lost dream. But after graduating DUI court, he passed the state bar exam, leading to a swearing in. To swear any, any lawyer to the Georgia bar would be, it's a great honor. But swearing Jacob is even a greater honor. For Pruitt, DUI court turned that lost dream into a moment only delayed his second chance. To be something, if not in the same way that I have thought about being since I was a child. Pruitt says he hopes his personal experience and journey through the legal system will make him a better lawyer who can practice with empathy and hopefully in the future now help others find their second chance as well. We'll send it back to you in the studio. All right. Well, that was, uh, that's kind of a summary of kind of what we do in our court is that People get to, um, to to get their lives back on track. Um, I know for me, one before I became involved as a, a DUI court, uh, with a DUI court, um, and I never heard of the DUI court when I came on the bench. I was a civil lawyer, and um, and, and I just didn't, did not realize what they did until uh, Judge Clayton, who started the court. I don't know if, if you know Judge Clayton; she's retired now, but she had a lot of vision to get this court started. It was one of the first courts, I think, in the state, right? The RC were not many for us. Um, but I know for me, I had um, a couple of my young life kids. Um, one of them told me one day, he said, you know, 
Uh, when, I, um, when I was in eighth grade, his parents were divorced, were getting a divorce. When I was in eighth grade, I would sleep on my couch so that when my dad came in, I could put him to bed. He lived in Atlanta Country Club. It shows you what type of family was hit by that. And, you know, it's it just a tragedy that it does in families. Um, as Darcy indicated in her remarks, um, the, um, we were one of the, we had, a, we had a lawyer involved in our program, and I think um, he was a tax lawyer. He'd worked at a big, a big firm in London, England, as well as here. And uh, he um, had a problem and came to our court and graduated. And I'll never forget his son standing up. His son was probably 15, 16 years old at the time. This was a couple of years ago. And uh, his son stood up at graduation. We let people do, if you ever want to come to graduation, it's an incredible moment because um, we let each of the speakers speak, each of the graduates speak. And then if any family wants to stand up and say anything, we let them do that. And the son stood up and he said, um, you know, I finally have my dad back. And what was interesting about this, his mom had gotten a TPO against his dad where he couldn't even see his son by law. <laughs> and, and we were, you know, you see a, a relationship restored by the DUI court and so, and by what it's gone through. So it really is transformative. It's the best thing we do in criminal justice right now. It's the most researched area. It's the one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on. And there's not many things that they agree on, but we're, we're able to uh, get a lot of support. We went to a national conference up in Nashville this summer. How many people were there? It seemed like, I mean, 7, yeah, we were at the Gaylord Hotel, and you couldn't walk around anywhere. Have you ever been to the Gaylord? That's the biggest place I've ever been in as far as hotels go, and it was wall-to-wall people. And, and so it's, uh, we have a national level that oversees what we do, and then we have a state level. Uh, we, have a, we have a council of accountability court judges that I'm on and that run the, 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 the accountability courts. We get audited and graded, and, uh, and we only do what research has told us to do. And if we don't do that, somebody writes us up <laughs> and gets us in trouble. And so, fortunately, and I don't say this because of me, I really say this because of Darcy, we have a very good court that's well, really well thought of in our state because it has been around a while. And um, and so Darcy trained me pretty well about how to how about how to run the court. <laughs> so um, the um, so anyway, I think um, uh, we'll, we'll give you a few fat more facts and figures about the court, and I want Darcy to chime in here too. Uh, we started in 2008, 2009, and um, our first graduate our first graduation had nine graduates. And now we've had, like I said, we've updated our numbers. We've had 494 graduates now. So you can imagine the number of families that have been affected by that. Um, the, I don't know if you understood the significance. Uh, was, I think our number's down a little bit. Point, we said 0.27 to 1 on there. Or point, yeah, 0.207. And we have, we have 0.19 here. 0.19. The, it, you're presumed um, drunk or presumed impaired at 0.08. So I'm not really good at math, but that's like... Point, 0.16. Yeah, 0.16 <laughs> is double that. So we're over double... So at point one nine, it's amazing they're driving anything. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely amazing. That's the average of what we see come through the program. We recognize typically if somebody has two or more DUIs, they're an alcoholic. You know, if you don't learn the lesson the first time you get a DUI, typically they're alcoholics. And, and alcoholics tend to drive because they think they can. 
you know, and a lot of them are functioning alcoholics. They do a lot of things, you know, uh, impaired because at some point, you know, with an alcoholic, it's at some point having the alcohol in your system is what's normal. Not having it isn't normal, and that's why it's so hard. You just can't just say no. You have to have treatment to get through that, and so. Um, for them to get back to a life of sobriety, there's a lot of discipline and a lot of things they've got to do so that it's back to normal being sober as, rather than being impaired. And so, um, and so we, um, and the other thing that's scared, go ahead, Doris. Um, well, I was going to say we assess them, but I mean, definitely the more DUIs you have or the more alcohol-related offenses you have, really it shows that there's a pattern in a behavior. And you've really, probably at the point that you're coming to see us, you've, you've built your tolerance level up to alcohol. We've had uh, people walk into our offices and their BAC level was 0.3 or 0.4. And, and a normal person, if, if they drink, that's alcohol poisoning. We would be dead or unconscious or in the hospital or something. Um, and they were functioning. They were forming complete sentences with us. So they had built their tolerance level up um, really to an unbelievable level. So it, it's a, we get the whole gamut. And so we get people who really just, they're kind of in the early stages of their alcoholism and they just have really bad luck and they've been arrested a lot really quickly. Um, and then we have the people that have been really like lifelong drinkers. I mean, I think the oldest uh, participant we've had was maybe 72. The youngest participant we've had was 19. So we've had people... I thought, I thought the tennis pro was in his 80s. <laughs> he might have been in his 80s. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was in his 80s, yeah, in fact. Yeah, in his 80s, 80s. yeah. So He'd had like 15 DUIs, but he lived <laughs> a lifetime, so. you know, lifetime DUI. So he had a longer life to build us up. Um, but, I mean, we've had someone in, in our program who was 20 years old, and they had three DUIs. So, I mean, legally, you're not even supposed to have alcohol till 21. So, 20 years old, three DUIs. We've had a 20-year-old come in, and his liver function was already at a capacitated rate. So, his liver function was, I think, at like 40%. So, 60% of his liver had already been kind of pickled, so to speak. So, um, by the time he graduated, he was, you know, 100% healthy, and his whole health had been restored. So... Um, we definitely understand that we're dealing with sick people. Um, a couple of years ago, I started tracking uh, statistically, like how many people have an accident at the time of their DUI. Because um, I knew that, I think it was just before COVID, but policing is down, they're short-staffed all the time. So I was just curious, like how many of these people are having accidents? And it's, a, it's not a big accident, Um, But it's like a fender bender at a turn or um, maybe they hit the median or ran off, hit the curb or hit a mailbox or something like that. And really like, uh, and this is our current population, but 38% of the people who came into DUI court had an accident at the time that they were arrested. So that gets you even thinking even more. If they had not had that accident, would they have even been arrested? So, you know, there's drunk people out there all the time driving. There's incapacitated drivers out there all the time driving. So it really is a public safety risk. That weighs heavy on our hearts. We want to keep everybody safe, our family safe, you safe, everybody else safe. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a multifaceted goal, but they all carry a, a lot of really important weight um, attached to them. So, Yeah, I think... Um you know, I actually took a vehicle homicide plea today, not dealing with the DUI, but 
just somebody that turned left in front of somebody and somebody was killed in an accident. Well, you can imagine the sorrow in the courtroom today when that occurred. And um, and so we recognize, too, that, you know, when, the, when you know, maybe a minor accident, it may not be. And, uh, of course, if it's a DUI and somebody's killed, usually they're over in Superior Court. I don't even get to see those those cases because in my court, I just hear misdemeanors. I hear civil cases, but misdemeanors is, is all we hear. Not all, but it's what we hear in our court. And so we we recognize that if you think about the number of people who have graduated here, you know, most all of them do not ever drink again, which means from a public safety standpoint, you know, you've got 494 people who are no longer constantly drinking and driving. And, um, and so it really is, uh, and, and the thing about it is, is with alcoholism, this, this is true of a lot of drug addictions, if you don't get them, putting them in jail, even if you can keep them sober in jail, uh, which you should be able to do, they just get out and the first thing they do is go back to drinking again. Incarcerating never solves an addiction. And so that's what we recognize here. And we do, we do a, a major league assessment on them. Not everybody that applies gets in. Uh, they we assess them, see if we can help them. That's on this oh, well, I'm already you're jumping, jumping ahead. I'm sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and so we covered everything on this slide yeah, we're here. Good. And so um, so anyway, it's a it's a, a, a we so like I said, not everybody gets in, and um, and and because we want to make sure that we are treating the right population, and with our counselors and everything that we do. Did you switch the slide already mm-hmm. or not? Yeah. Okay. And so we have a, um, 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 well, I'll let, I'll let Darcy talk a little bit more okay. about our assessment and what we do to get people in. And by the way, if you have a question, just raise your hand. Uh, we'll, we'll be glad to take questions as we go. So I'm a judge. Nobody likes to listen to me for a long time. So, uh, so anyway, well, uh, any questions you have, please feel free to raise your hand. So uh, presently we're set up as a post-conviction treatment program, which means that everybody's going to have to plead guilty um, to a DUI to come into our program, and then they're placed on probation. All of their probation requirements are written into our program, so we make sure that by the time they graduate, they've completed all those requirements. Um, but because we understand that they're doing a lot and we're trying to get them sober, and that's our primary focus, we spread those um, obligations out a little bit more than a normal probation case. Um, so we're assessing, We our target audience for the program really is high risk, high need, a substance use disorder of moderate or severe. Um, it could be one of those, it could be two of those, it could be all three of those. Really the higher risk that you are and the more severe your disease is, uh, the more successful you will actually be in our program. So uh, recently we assessed someone, he was low risk, low need, mild substance use disorder. We've created a special little pocket for that population because studies have shown if you over-treat somebody, you cause harm. If you under-treat someone, you cause harm. So that's not at all what we want to do. That's kind of the opposite of our business. So we're assessing everyone. Um, We have multiple steps in our assessment process, a clinical evaluation. Typically, we refer people to Dr. Sherman because we love her. Um, So she's doing the clinical evaluation, which is also a requirement for DDS, so that's meeting a criteria. But she's the one who's going to determine what their substance use disorder is. So are they mild, moderate, medium, or severe? Um, And then we're also utilizing um, an evidence-based tool, and this is what we do in our office with um, the case manager, 
and it's called the RAMP, which is a risk and needs triage. And that's where we get the high risk, high needs um, kind of diagnosis from. So it's really looking at their criminal history, it's looking at personality disorders, it's looking at substance use, um, and then we're able to really kind of assess, do they have high risk, high needs? Typically, they'll be either high risk or high needs. Um, It's not often that we get both high risk and high needs, um, but those are also usually severe. Um, So we do a couple of other self-assessments just to kind of determine are there other outlying mental health disorders uh, that maybe they aren't aware of, like anxiety or eating disorders or something like that, so that we can just make sure that it's incorporated in their case plan with their treatment provider um, so that they really get holistic care. So that's our assessment process, and that's how we're determining, you know, if you're right fit for us, because we understand we have a very prescribed dose of treatment. Um, There's not a lot of flexibility in our program as far as the classes that we offer, the curriculum that we offer, what we're doing. Um, The most individualized treatment comes from the individual counseling sessions. Um, So we want to just make sure that you fit into our box so that we're not over-treating you or under-treating you, if that all makes sense. Yes, sir. So typically, (laughs) it really depends on criminal history. So DDS has specific uh, governances and laws set in place based on how many DUIs you've had in a certain number of years. And then the the legal code section has um, governances of how many DUIs you've had in so many years. So it really just is a case-by-case basis. Our typical population has two DUIs in a five-year time period. So that means that their license is suspended for a minimum of 120 days. Yeah, they don't, um, they don't get a break on their license. I mean, I could. I actually, as a DUI court judge, I could I have authority to give a license pretty much any time I want to, but I don't typically do that. I, the law is very clear about when they can get a license, when they're not. And so they would, they would get their license the same time somebody outside the program would get it. In other words, it's, it's dictated by law. And so if you've had two DUIs, like I said, you, you can't drive at all for – yeah, and then 120, 120 days, days yeah. and then you you typically will have to get an interlock, which is something you blow into uh, to crank your car just to make sure, and, that, and that's for another period of time. I wish I could tell you all, the DDS law changes like every month. <laughs> I mean, it just, as John knows, as a lawyer, it, I don't know why the legislature, it's just like every time I call, I have to call DDS all the time. What do I do now? You know, and so. So they can't play the system with that. I go get their program to get them a license. No. In fact, I'm very conscious of that. I mean, I would not, I've had people come to me and say, well, if if you'll give them a license, we'll we'll, we'll get them in the program. I'm like, uh uh-uh. I mean, first of all, that's not the right reason to come into the program. We want you to come into the program because we want, because you want treatment. Yeah. And so, no, we do not let that happen. And I, I don't, um, it's a, I don't think I've ever really given a lot. I, every now and then I might waive a interlock requirement for financial disability, for financial issues, which I can't do under the law. Uh, and But other than that, they have to follow the law. And so some of them will get their licenses while they're with us. Uh, but and, it's, and it is tough in the program. We Transportation's an issue. and But, you know, they just have to... And when they come in the program, we assess them for that. You know, do you have transportation? Because they're, there's, they're coming to something almost every night. And so 
Um, so that is an issue, but no, they do not get a break uh, for being in the program from a license standpoint. Because I will tell you as a judge, I'm very conscious of public safety. I do not want to wake up in the morning and read that one of my participants, you know, hurt somebody in a car accident. I mean, that's the last thing I want to read in the morning. And so uh, public safety is a huge concern. And, and, and I'll tell you, like I said, this program increases public safety. It does not decrease it. It's not people are not and we'll explain a little bit of the program to you this program's hard i mean it's it is not easy and so people come in the program sometimes it's, they would have a it would be less trouble for them just to go to jail for 30 days and get out and go on regular probation but this program is a lot harder than that but people but there are attorneys like john and john's been such a great supporter of our program they recognize how good it is and they they talk to their clients into coming into the program because it does help them solve their addiction, which is what we're trying to do. Um, the program, we have a big team that's in the program, and Cobb County has been incredibly supportive of us. Um, they, um, we have uh, Darcy and Tiffany, who initially we had to pay up by grant money, right? That we would get. Never me. Yeah, well, Darcy always got her salary. <laughs> Tiffany, we never share from year to the year. The coordinator role, but, specifically. You know, uh, Dar- uh, Cobb County has picked up <laughs> most all the salaries. Uh, well, they picked up all of our yep. salaries. Uh, I mean, my salary was paid anyway, but um, but they have been very supportive. And so we have a, uh, uh, like I said, uh, Darcy and Tiffany uh, run the program. We also have a, um, we have three counselors that we hire and uh, um, uh, they're independent contractors and they do all the counseling and they are very bought into our program. They love the DUI core program. Darcy did something that was pretty uh, radical uh, about four years ago and told her I'd take credit if it worked. Blame her if it didn't. But uh, we, uh, we felt like we needed a building to do our work in. We were just, we were using a counseling service and the prices kept going up and up and up. It's an expensive program. And Darcy did a lot of searching and found a building just uh, less than a mile from the courthouse, uh, right on the bus line that we're leasing. And so when we're not doing Zoom for COVID reasons, all of our counseling takes place there. All of our, and we also, um, group meetings take place there. They know where to come each week. And then we also do our uh, drug testing there. And we have a drug testing company that we use. It's a turnkey deal. They collect the drug, they collect the, the specimens do all the testing and so every morning the participant has to uh, call in or go on the computer and see if they've got to come in for a drug test that day and they never know it's you gotten know. really easy because now they can sign up for text messaging yeah. and, and the computer texts them each morning to let them know if they have a drug test and yeah. then we'll send a reminder later in the day don't forget you have a drug test today <laughs> but it's very random. The, the participants early on in the program get tested more, I guess, than the ones later, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, but we, um, and that, that's all done in the building, too. So there's a lot of accountability. If they miss a test, there's significant consequences for that. Um, if, they, um, if they, obviously, if they test positive, there are consequences. And we, we can monitor their, their, their progress. That's one of the things we do to keep them accountable. And so, um, so they're, how many nights a week do you think they're they're working? I mean, they certainly, especially early on, there's a potential where they could be down at that building four or five times a week. Um, but 
you know, testing is random, so that's what I, that's always my answer. It's always the same answer. I don't know. Yeah. Testing is random. So, um, but they're definitely at least down there twice a week. And, uh, of course, they, they, they need to have a job to be in the program. And, and, of course, we have all walks of life. You know, we've got, like I said, anything from attorneys to accountants to, uh, to just about any type of, of job that you could have. Well, they are required to work if they are unemployed at the time. We will make them do community service and make them do so many job searches a day because that's an important part of their recovery is to be employed. And so we do everything at night for them as far as the counseling and the drug testing and everything else so they can work all day and then come to the, to the DUI court building at night for whatever they need, need to do. We also, um, I really would have loved for you to meet our counselors. They're just amazing, <laughs> amazing people. And at graduation, they are totally, everyone gets up and says how much they were, their lives were changed by the counseling they get. Because we really treat everything, right? I mean, we, if there's any issue, we, we give them the counseling for that. And so we try um, because of the assessment process, we kind of have a, a general picture or a snapshot of what some of their needs might be. It might be it might be trauma. It might be, um, like I said, an eating disorder or anxiety or depression. And so we really we have um, three very different counselors that have very different backgrounds. Um, and so we try and really kind of match them to the best of our ability with with a counselor who we think can, can meet their needs the best. And I meet with them um, every two weeks in the courtroom. We have DUI court every Tuesday afternoon every other week. And uh, I will talk individually with each one of them. And and I'm amazed because they'll, they'll, the counselors will give me notes to ask them questions, and you'd be amazed at what they've discussed and, and how much they've gotten out of it. I mean, they, they, they give me great comments about what they've learned that week um, and what they're teaching them. So it really is, um, they do an amazing job. We also have a deputy sheriff that's assigned to us by the sheriff's department. And she works with us in the other accountability courts, and she's responsible for, um, we have to go pick somebody up, <laughs> give them a ride to the jail or, or to the courthouse. Search, <laughs> or they'll, search for some contraband. That's right. They can go and search the house at any point. Uh, she'll go and check. They have a curfew. They have to be in by 11? Midnight to 5. Midnight to 5 is their curfew. If and they are not at the house or they don't, they don't answer their phone between midnight and 5, they can go to jail. Yeah, and, and we have a surveillance officer along with the sheriff's deputy who does a, the majority of the of the curfew checks and the work verifications. So if they say they work at Joe Schmo's tire shop, she's going to go to Joe Schmo's tire shop and make sure that you're there and that you're working and that you're a legitimate employee, and she's going to keep coming back to make sure that you still work there and that you're still an employee. And then, um, like I said, she does a lot of the curfew checks or most of the curfew checks, and she's waking you up in the middle of the night. She's meeting your dog, and she's going to breathalyze you to make sure you haven't been drinking, and then she'll send you back to bed. And uh, it's an amazing job. You know, the, again, the great thing about it is even, even though it's an inconvenience for our uh, participants, um, they say that they're always real kind when they come, and they and they take an interest in them, you know, and just in their lives, just even, even in doing a curfew check. I mean, that's yeah. how much they like the program too. And yeah. and well, both our deputies, I would say, are both are both very compassionate people yeah. as well, and really um, fit our team well. And so, you know, who's to say they're also not doing a little porch therapy? You yeah. know, they're trying to encourage them and. 
you know, give them whatever bits of advice that they can mm -hmm. to help keep them on track too. So we're, we're very lucky to have them. And so the remainder of the team, we have a prosecutor on the team that's provided by our solicitor's office. The solicitor, uh, who is Barry Morgan, uh, now, the district attorney and the superior court, they deal with felonies. Solicitors deal with misdemeanors. And so we have a prosecutor assigned to the team as well as a defense attorney that's, a, that's assigned by the circuit defender's office. And so what we will do, they, uh, they obviously, um, the prosecutor negotiates all the pleas that they come, when they come into the court. But like I said, I, I know Darcy said this, you, you, have, you plead guilty to DUI. You do not get... This is not a, there, there is no first offender for DUI in Georgia anyway, but it does go on their record. And so it's, it is not a program where the DUI is forgiven if they go through the program. And there's no um, like expungement or dismissal no, either afterwards. And, and I think part of the reason for that is it's just a public safety thing. You want to know if somebody's had a previous DUI. Mm -hmm. If for some reason they were to drink again, you want to, you want to know that. And so... Um, but the, uh, the defense attorney uh, takes the interest of the defendant, you know, the prosecutor. So we, every week we meet before we have court and we assess each individual that's coming to court that day, figure out how they're doing, if they've done some things that have violated the program, figure out what to do to sanction them for that. And so it's a team effort. Mm -hmm. And you've got every interest involved, and then we make decisions. I mean, I have the final decision, but I listen very carefully to our experts and so it's it's a it's such a different way to do law enforcement and to do criminal justice and it's like nothing we've ever seen and it's a really really great program um i can do these two did you want to talk about this you want me to i'll, I'll do this one okay since you kind of touched on the program requirements yes um so Starting out, if you're brand new into DUI court, we're going to expect you to go to two community-based support group meetings a week. That's AA, NA, Celebrate Recovery, Smart Recovery, any of those types of community-recognized, organized activities is appropriate. Uh, we also require a gender group meeting each week. So we have a men's group and a women's group. Um, we have uh, weekly group counseling. So phases one and two, they go to groups on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. So they're going through uh, the introductory curriculum, which is Responsible Decisions, which focuses on um, DUI-specific behaviors and just kind of helping them to recognize the cost of their disease and their decisions. Later on in the program, they go through a curriculum called uh, Moral Recognition Therapy, which is abbreviated with MRT. And it's uh, pretty in-depth and significant and difficult. Um, but the counselors help walk them through all of that. So, uh, but it, it teaches them accountability, responsibility, um, not to uh, blame other people. That's kind of a big thing with addiction is really like just taking responsibility for your decisions, um, not being defiant towards authority figures, that sort of thing. Um, also, they have individual counseling, which we mentioned, and they're in the beginning, they're doing that weekly, and then it, it fades out um, as they progress into the program. Um, they're coming to see us in the courtroom every other week, and then those doggone random drug tests, they'll pop up anytime, so they will test. Um, because it's random, it can be, you know, it's an average of two or three times a week, but it could be four days in a row and then you have a week off. They're calling in every single day. Every single day they have the potential of testing and that includes weekends and holidays. 
So um, it is the most intensive level of probation supervision that, that there are. So in, in corrections, it is the most intensive level of supervision based on the activities and the requirements that are involved. So. You know, it's so interesting uh, when you talk to the participants, we'll, uh, you know, I'll ask them, you know, how was your 4th of July? And they'll go, well, you know, it's my first 4th of July sober. Mm-hmm. And it was a great day. Or we'll ask them about Christmas, and they'll say, well, this is the first Christmas I wasn't sitting in the corner drinking and having everybody mad at me. You know, it just, it just changes. They, they begin to see as they get in the program how a sober life is such a good life. And so it, um, you know, so when they, the things that they do in, uh, in AA and in our counseling, you know, all the tools that we're teaching them, they begin to see the immediate effects in their lives in the program. And they really do like that. You know, you can ask any of them, when was the last time you were sober for, they, we keep up with their sobriety. You know, I ask, when's the last time you were sober for 60 days? I was 12. I was 13. You know, and because, you know, people don't realize this, you know, alcoholics start as teenagers. And, you know, we, the, the 21 and under rule really is a pretty wise rule because if you start at that younger age, there's a great chance you're going to become an alcoholic when you start that young. And, um, and so, you know, go ahead. Well, I think definitely, like, in my, in my career, I, I've learned a lot of things. I, I'm not an addict. I didn't have um, an addict in my family until I got married. Um, and, uh, you know, addiction doesn't discriminate. So that's important. Um, and really, alcoholism it is a whole different piece. It's everywhere you go. It's at restaurants. It's at parties. It's at social events. It's, it's really everywhere you go. So learning how to cope with that and how to live your life successfully, um, knowing that, that, I mean, I couldn't tell you how many liquor stores I pass on the way home every day. You know, and then you go to the grocery store and it's there and then you go to a restaurant and it's there and and it's just such a huge emphasis in, in our society and in our culture. Um, I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who are really a, who suffer with the disease of addiction and they're an alcoholic and they're able to overcome that. I mean, I think we both everyone on our team really has a tremendous amount of respect because we understand um, how difficult it is. But it is I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, so. It is, and um, you know, so we, uh, we're very, um, we get very excited at graduation to see people graduate. We, we are so happy to see them go through, um, uh, to see their lives change, and uh, it's the most, like I said, it's probably the most rewarding thing we can do in the criminal justice system. And we've got a few highlights. I think yeah, we've got some pictures, you. and I yeah. and I know that we're trying to record this for a podcast, so pictures don't here? translate very well with a podcast. Yeah. But uh, the video that we showed earlier, as well as some other videos, um, can be found on our Facebook page. So if you go to Facebook and you just Google Cobb DUI Court, you can watch the videos. You can look at all our pictures. Um, everything, including the Eleven Alive video that we um, showed earlier, is is all on there. So over the years, um, we've had some visiting judges. This is Judge Kavanaugh. We didn't really talk about the national organization. Well, was, well, was Supreme Court Judge Kavanaugh, but a different Judge Kavanaugh. 
<laughs> he, he came um, and was a guest speaker through, um, through the National Association um, of Drug Court Professionals, so he was a guest one year. Um, this is Judge Boggs at the time. He was on the appellate court. Um, now he's the chief judge, judge the of the Georgia she's Supreme Court. This is Judge Clayton who yep. started the program, and she's still very active as a senior judge. Um, so we try and get out into the community, so events like this are really great, um, just so that we can kind of all share a common bond in, in the message. Um, at the time, uh, Sam Olins was attorney general in Georgia, and he had a campaign against prescription pill abuse. Um, and then this gentleman, who will remain anonymous, uh, was a graduate of our program. I think he was close to graduating, but not had graduated yet. Um, and his, his, he started with pills, and so his drug of choice was opiates. And he um, graduated from our program. He had a DUI drugs case. So uh, he came and spoke, um, I believe, I know we were in Woodstock. I think this is River Ridge High School in, um, in Cherokee County. And then we went to the Marietta uh, Rotary Club. They were kind enough to give us a donation, so we went and promoted our program, and this is also another graduate. Um, we talked about trainings. We really do a lot of trainings. So it's really important that we stay on top of the research. Like I said, the most important thing in the program is that we don't um, harm others in the things that we're doing. That includes uh, not only treatment, but also the policies that we're implementing. So we go to training every year. This was um, this was a foundational training, so it was four days long, and we got to do lots of fun activities as a team. So we are we just went to the national conference in July, and we're going to the state conference in October. And it's in Athens. Who doesn't want to go to Athens? Who doesn't want to go to go dogs? I'm a transplant. I have no I have no concern. So. Um, our, because we were implemented in 2008, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary in 2018. So at the time, it was Chief, Chief Justice, Justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, Justice Melton. So he came and he was our guest speaker. Um, the chairman, Mike Boyce, um, he's such a kind soul. I miss him dearly. But uh, he gave us a proclamation, um, and he was a huge supporter of our program. Um, and then we made a video, which is also on our Facebook page, um, with some of our alumni. So this is Amanda. She went into um, addiction counseling. This is Amy. Um, she loves to sponsor people, and she's just an amazing gift to the recovery community. This is Tiffany, who we all spoke fondly of. This is the original probation officer and coordinator for the program. So we all got together, had a good old family reunion, made a great video. Um, and really just celebrated the progress and the, the work that the program has done. When we opened our treatment facility in 2019, we did a ribbon cutting, so that was a lot of fun. It was like the hottest day ever on record in September. Um, <laughs> so we were all sweating profusely, but we had a great time, and we had a really great turnout, and the MDJ was there and did a, a really beautiful article. So we're blessed to have that facility. And in July um, this summer, Drug Court actually also started using that facility. So they modeled um, the program that we had implemented. So now they also have their own independent contracted, um, contracted clinicians running groups and using that facility with us. So we, we share it. We, we like to share. Um, so we, like everybody else in the world, have had to deal with COVID and figure things out, do virtual groups. We've all become masters of Zoom. 
And sometimes we get to have graduations with just the graduates in masks. And sometimes we get to have graduations in large facilities and we get to actually celebrate them. So we always love graduations. Um, I regularly say that that's our payday because that's when we really get to see, uh, you know, the little bird leaves the nest and, you know, our work is done and they go live a happy, sober, successful life. Let me just say one thing real quickly about COVID is um, you know, I, we were able, thanks to Darcy and, and her great leadership, we were able to quickly switch to Zoom and, and continue the counseling. We, we drug tested through the whole. Um, never stopped. We never stopped drug testing. And our participants said they would have never gotten through COVID if they had not been in this court, that they would have been back drinking in a heartbeat. And that this court helped them get through a very difficult time. And like I said, it was really pretty amazing. We, we were fortunate to have this building where we could do our drug testing, and our drug testing company was great. But it was just, um, um, it was just impressive that the, our counselors and everybody was able to adjust so they, they could get through, get through COVID and, and hopefully we're on the other side of it. Really, and, and it's, I mean, it's phenomenal because you have people who have zero technological experience and then we're making them go to group three times a week in court on, you know, WebEx or something like that. And, or we've had, we had someone in the program right now, he, he didn't even own a cell phone. And we're like, well, you're going to need to get one because <laughs> you can't do this without it. So um, this is some of our graduations. This is the 11 Alive video and uh, Jacob after the ceremony, uh, which is exciting. This is another graduate, Sean. He works at Lockheed. Um, he's a very successful young man, and we were honored to have him come back as a guest speaker. Um, and this is... You know, like a parent, you're not supposed to have favorites, but um, this is Melissa, and um, she was at our last graduation in August, and she, um, <laughs> she said, she spoke at graduation, and she's like, you know, Darcy wasn't my favorite, and I knew it. That was not a secret to me. <laughs> uh, I'm really nobody's favorite, uh, which sometimes makes me sad, but I know it's my job. Um, it, she struggled in the program. And one of the program requirements is if you don't have your GED or high school diploma, you have to get one. Um, certainly we make exceptions if you, um, maybe if English isn't your second, is a second language and you don't read English or understand it or speak it well, we'll, we'll give you um, English classes, we'll make you do that. Or if you're illiterate, we'll make you do literacy classes because, um, I mean, you can't, can't take a GED test if you can't read. So, um, but she needed her GED, and she was so angry about it, and she fought us the whole time. And uh, when she graduated, she was so grateful. Um, she was talking about going back to college, which I think she's done. Um, and most importantly and impressively, she has since written a book. Um, so she has written a book um, about her recovery, about her beautiful time in DUI court and um, some of the trials that she went through while she was in DUI court. I know that she lost her dad when she was in DUI court um, to cancer. And so it's really her whole journey in recovery. And um, I blanked out on the name because I'm talking, but if I wasn't, I would know. But the author, um, the doctor who wrote The Five Love Languages, 
he wrote the foreword in her book, and they just kind of met by happen chance, happenstance. And, and But now he's, you know, this renowned author writing the foreword in her book, and they're actually working together and collaborating on a second book um, together about the love languages in recovery. So go to our Facebook page. You can find her book. It's on Amazon. Her name is um, Melissa Witherspoon, and her book is called I'm Sober, So Now What? Um, it's a short read. It's a beautiful story. Um, I was blessed to, uh, she sent me the transcript before it was published, so I sat in, I don't tell my boss, I sat in my office and read it. Um, but I'm telling <laughs> I was sitting at my desk, I was laughing, I was crying, I was a mess, and, uh, but it's a beautiful book, and I'm just so proud of her and uh, the life that she's built, and she just has, she's on fire for the Lord. She has a passion for recovery and, and what she can do to help to help us and to help anybody else in recovery. So um, definitely buy her book because I want to support her ministry as well. Um, so if you would like to find us, you can go to CobbCounty.org, search DUI Court in the search box. That's the fastest way to find us. We also have a nonprofit organization, which we're not going to really talk about at length, but they do provide scholarships and funding um, for the participants in our program who can't necessarily afford it because we are a self-funded program. So they do have to pay $75 a week to participate in, in the program. That covers their drug testing bills. That covers their counseling bills. That covers the rent on the building. Um, so I'm only a small part of that. I mean, we yeah. money for the rest of it. So, and I get grant funding and whatnot to cover kind of the rest of that, but we are self-funded, so Sober Streets is really kind of an organization that's been developed. Um, it's a 501c3, and they help um, really predominantly help participants pay for the program and cover their costs if they, if they have um, financial needs. So they have a website, soberstreetsinc.org, soberstreets.org. I think they're all copyrighted. So I uh, know that we probably talked longer than we were supposed to, but I want to, again, like the judge said, offer the opportunity for questions if anybody has any. We covered a lot, and I know it's kind of like um, drinking water out of a fire hydrant, but... Question. Yeah. John. What's the average length of the participants in the program? So the average length of time that participants in the program, the program was originally developed to be a minimum of 12 months um, <clears throat> with potential setbacks or just delays in completing the curriculum. Our average was 14 months, um, and that was pre-COVID. I will say... Um, in all honesty, COVID has been hard on everyone. It's been hard on, been hard on me. It's been hard on everyone. Um, and I think the hardest part about doing DUI court during COVID is doing it virtually. We, at a at a certain point in time, we did virtual court for at least, yeah. gosh, over a year. It was miserable yeah. to have sixty people on the screen plus staff. You know, I'm just. Yeah, who's talking? Oh, mute yourself. It's, I mean, it was it was a disaster. Um, and then they're doing groups virtually, and they're going to AA virtually. And, you know, I'm just speaking personally. If I had to go to AA virtually, I would probably, like, turn it on, and then my ADD would kick in, and then I would walk away, and then I would go pet the dog, and then I would start dinner, and then I would remember I needed to move the laundry. And, I, and then the next thing I know, the AA meeting's over, and I heard nothing. So 
you know, I think all of that, and then participating in group. MRT, like I said, is a really difficult curriculum, and it's done best in a group setting, in person. There's steps that are in MRT where you have to interview your peers, you have to do um, community service work, you really rely on your peers to help, hey, how did you do this part on that step? You know, since you're, uh, uh, you know, further beyond than me, and I need help fixing this, you know, what do I need to fix on this step? So it's really done best in a community, which is hard to build virtually. So virtually during COVID, um, the length of time for our program went really to 20 months on average. Um, we've kind of, we went back in person 100% pre-COVID for a month, <laughs> and then we had another surge. Now we're operating kind of hybrid, so some of our groups are in person, specifically MRT is in person, um, and some of our groups are still meeting virtually just because they're so large, it's really not safe to meet in a small room. Um, it's a confined space. So um, I think at our last graduation, that's kind of started to creep back down, which is what I had anticipated when we start going back in person. So where I think we creeped, we're down to like 18 or 16 months. So hopefully, eventually, we'll get back to that 14-month mark. We typically, uh, and I say we typically do it always now, we actually give them a 36-month sentence. We will, they'll, they'll plead at three different things because each 12 months to serve consecutive and that's in the event somebody just gets bogged down in the program, and we usually will then terminate the final 12 months if they complete it within the 24-month period. And so we do give them uh, – there is some incentive uh, from sentencing. We will cut their fines in half if they complete the program. DUIs are expensive. The fines are expensive. We will uh, give them uh, a 200-hour credit for their community service. And there's opportunities and if they're – in compliance, there's opportunities to earn additional incentives. Yeah. We give them community service work incentives. We give them monetary incentives. Yeah. So there's there's ways in the program if they're in compliance to, to earn extra things. So we're, we're able to help them a little bit on their sentencing. And um, so that that's, that is that is some help. So, uh, yes? Um, your therapists, do they also prescribe medication? They do not. <clears throat> None of our therapists prescribe medication. When we were contracted with a facility before, they had an in-house psychiatrist that was able to do that. Um, but since we don't have that anymore, um, we'll refer to community resources if they don't have insurance. There's um, the CSB, uh, which I think is managed by Highland Rivers now. So there's, you know. What is CSB? Um, Community service it's board. Community, it's basically the public health department. So, but okay. they can dispense. It's done on a sliding scale. So they can do mental exams. They can um, do assessments. They can see patients. They can uh, prescribe medications, and they have a discounted pharmacy where you can buy medications at a discounted rate. It's on. They're located on County Services Road. Um, so if they don't have insurance, we'll refer them there for um, more advanced psychiatric care. Um, if they do have insurance, certainly we refer them um, to see their physician, and we try our best to collaborate care with the clinicians. So they might sign some confidentiality waivers to allow uh, the clinician or us to discuss the care with the physician to s just to make sure that their, their care is collaborated in an appropriate manner. 
Yes, sir. How many people can you accommodate in the program simultaneously? And also, is that as many as would qualify under your criteria? We, uh, our ideal number is 70. That's kind yeah. of our sweet spot is 70. I think we would probably max out at 80. That's when our counselors would get really mad at me. <laughs> and we're a, little, we're a little below that right now. We're probably in the we're 60s. 59. 59. But so, we just graduated oh, we just a bunch of one. people. And so, yeah. so we kind of fluctuate, um, but we try to shoot at 70. When I first came in the program, we were in 90-something, and it was it was pretty high. It was too much. Um, mm-hmm. But but on the other hand, we're not going to turn anyone down that qualifies for the program. We'll figure out a way. Because yeah. uh, we, if you qualify, we want you to be in the program. I think and because, so. I mean, there's a lot of people who qualify for the program but may never explore it as an option. Um, they may not know about it. It may not appeal to them. It may not fit with their life schedule. Um, there are some, there's several DUI courts statewide um, and some programs operate a little bit differently. Some programs I like to refer to as voluntold, where they're really kind of their arm is twisted and it's like, do DUI court, or, or you can do jail and probation, but you're gonna go to jail for like six months or something. So then it's kind of like a no-brainer. Which, which are you gonna do? Which are you gonna choose? Most people can't go to jail for six months. But we, um, we don't wanna do that. We don't wanna do that. Because so, we want them to come in the program because yeah. they wanna come in the program. So we are a voluntary program. So we're, our referrals are all voluntary. So our, our population definitely fluctuates because of that. Our retention rate is about 85%. So not everybody graduates because their probation may expire and then we, we can't really do anything at that point. Um, that doesn't happen often now that we do the 36 month pleas. Um, although we, a record, we had someone in the program for like four years, I think he had a five, five year probation term, had so many DUIs and, and he was, he stuck it out with us for like four years. I should have maybe, he should have named his kid after me or something. Uh, <laughs> but our retention rate is 85%, um, which is, is, yeah, it's high. The, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's great to see them graduating. So we feel like because we assess them well coming in that we know that they're going to be uh, successful. The other thing that people don't really think about is how much money we save the county. Uh, I don't know. I, this number may be outdated, but on my notes, we saved, what, $3 million? It's about, like, yeah, $2.6, $2.3 million. Yeah. Um, and that's and in, just an incarceration cost. Just it's taking data points. So they're all employed. They're paying their taxes. They're living in the county. Yeah. They're taking care of their children who are not in defects. Um, you know, they're not in custody. So all of those things, you know, when you tally them up, we do have a couple of people on felony probation. They help bump up our our, our money save our cost savings a little bit because prison is a little more expensive than the county jail. Um, so. I mean, the county jail is probably what sixty dollars a day, something I think like it's that. More than that. Maybe it's more than that now. And and if you're in the state prison system, it's even more than that. Yeah. So, um, so it, it's proved to be an economical thing. We more than pay for ourselves. And like yeah. I said, the um, the program really is pretty efficient in that regard. So, yes, ma'am. When they exit the program, do you give them the tools to continue to be successful resources, you know, in, in case they may relapse? Yep. Are there support systems for their families that they have an understanding mm-hmm. that this particular individual needs help? It's a cry for help. Yeah. Right. 
Well, and that's why we require um, AA or NA to be a component of that program, of our program, because we want them to get connected into the community because we're, we, we want to go away. We don't want to be around forever. We want to go away. We, we don't want to be in your life for four years. So if they're connected to AA, they have a sponsor, which is a requirement. They're working the 12 steps. They're going to meetings regularly. They're building that community. They have a home group. You know, then they always have that resource that they're comfortable returning to um, if ever they need it. And obviously the hope is that they stay connected into that community, you know, and that we, you know, we always ask them when they're exiting the program, are you planning on staying connected to AA? Are you planning on being a sponsor? Pay it forward. Pay forward what you've learned and the wisdom. And sponsoring people helps keep them accountable. So we're holding them accountable while we have them, but then if they transfer that accountability towards sponsorship, you know, that's another tool and resource that they can use. And I've had lots of people who um, were sponsors when they first left UI Corps, and then they kind of drop the ball, they get busy, they get really kind of lazy in their recovery, they quit sponsoring people, and then they relapse. You know, and hopefully they, they have the tools to, to know what to do to get back into recovery, and some of them do it very quickly, some of them have to learn the hard way a little bit, and some of them come back and see us twice. And then we say, okay, what did you not learn the last time you were here so that we can make sure you learn it this time? Um, and so those are options. I will tell you this, and I, uh, I've never been to an AA meeting. I probably ought to go just to see what one is like. I'll take you but sometime. <laughs> AA is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I know it's been around for 60 or 70 years probably, but you can, I'll ask them a lot about their AA group, and they can't say enough good things about it. What it means to them, the accountability that it gives them, the 12-step program. I mean, I know the founder is pretty famous. I don't know his name, but they do an, ama they do an amazing job. And AA really, AA really does do a great job to hold them accountable and to keep them on the straight and narrow. And so we, we really appreciate all that AA does for our graduates. Did you have a question over here, sir? It's the success rate. Okay. Oh, okay, perfect. Thank you. John. One quick one. Okay. A little bit longer. Do you have to be a Cobb County resident to be in the program? Yes. Okay. Ish. ish. Yes, ish. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, ish. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> so Paulding County doesn't have a DUI court program. Bartow County doesn't have a DUI court program. We've negotiated with the sheriff to allow them to, if they live, I don't remember if it's two or three miles from the county line, but just outside, then we, we can accept them if they have a transportation plan. Okay. Now, um, what, what can happen, and we typically. do this a lot, is that we will... They'll have the DUI here in Cobb, but they live in Fulton. So we'll transfer it to the yeah. Fulton County DUI court or to the DeKalb County. We do it frequently, and we get transfers in. And the reason why they have to live in the county is we have to keep an eye on them. And they and don't have so transportation. Our, yeah, they don't have transportation. <laughs> Sheriff's Department can only work in the county, so they have to live here. So yeah, it's really... but. One thing that is nice is we, we can transfer them anywhere there's a DUI court, and, yeah. and it's a really smooth process. Okay, my second one maybe take a little bit longer. What happens if a participant gets kicked out of the program? What happens to a sentence? What happens to that individual? Well, we have a hearing. There's a due process hearing, and, and we the, it, the, the other great thing about our program is we, we, 
we give a lot of due process, which we, we, we want to do. I mean, it's, and so we will have a hearing uh, that we will, they will get an attorney uh, to represent them, called a termination hearing. They're the least favorite thing I like to do, to be honest with you. I just don't like them because I feel like we failed. And uh, we'll do it, they'll get an attorney. We'll have a hearing. Uh, sometimes they'll negotiate the termination and then they go back on regular probation. Typically, they're going to serve a significant amount more time. Uh, we may, depending on where it is, we may revoke their entire um, whatsoever remaining on their sentence to serve in the county jail, or we'll revoke a certain amount of time, and then they'll go back on regular probation, and they will have to meet, obviously, certain probation goals. Uh, and the DUI is, um, uh, has statutory probation um, things that have to be done. And so they have to get those things done, regardless of whether they're in our program or not. Um, and so, um, so if we have to, it becomes a little more punitive at that point if they have to, if, they ter if they're terminated from the program. And so, so that's what happens. We'll, um, but they'll, but they're represented by counsel, and we have a hearing. And so it is, it is something where they get to uh, put up their case and, and make their. And certainly, if they're, if they're at the point where they're at, um, having a termination hearing, one of the things that we're going to look at is what got them there, and is it because they need a higher level of care? So we're an, we're an outpatient treatment program. We're not even an intensive outpatient treatment program. We don't meet that ASAM criteria. We're just a good old-fashioned outpatient treatment program. So um, if they need a higher level of care, uh, over the years we've learned what types of facilities are available, what are good recommendations. Um, a lot of times it's really because they're probably dual diagnosis and they're not receiving all of the resources that they need because we, can, we can't provide all of them. So um, they might need mental health care, uh, prescriptions, and a substance use. Um, treatment and so we know some facilities that we can refer to and we'll always refer to some facilities that are inpatient treatment that are able to meet the needs of a dual diagnosis patient and that are affordable um, and some are even free so I have those resources always in my back pocket and so if we need to um, use them I'm always happy to disclose them to to the attorney that's representing the, the client and that's a good clarification I mean obviously we have some people that are just not cooperating in the program and we know they can do it, they're just not doing it. And that's when it's when they, they may serve, you know, more time in custody. Then we have the people that get in the program and we and they're like I said, they need intensive care. They need and then what we do is try to figure out a way to get them into that care and um, and then we'll we'll put them on regular probation, but they'll be in the intensive care area whether it's in in-house or some more in or, or residency or whatever so really I, I probably was not fully you know sometimes it's because they're not cooperating in the program sometimes the program just doesn't meet their needs and so we want to get them to a place that does and sometimes they go into into um, residency treatment and then they come back to us and we can mm -hmm. then go from there and so we've had that happen um, we've had a uh, We've had in Superior Court, they've had other charges, but they've got an alcohol addiction. Part of their probation sometimes, they'll send them to us. We've had one guy that spent a year in jail, right, and then he came to us as part of his probation, and, and they just transfer the probation to me to, to handle. So, 
So we're trying to be um, more creative as much as possible. We're trying to build bridges with Superior Court and other programs and work collaboratively to really get the defendants plugged into the best fit for them. Like, what is the best fit for them? What are their needs? Um, just because they have a felony doesn't mean they can't do a misdemeanor program because um, it's intense. So, and really in, in regards between comparing drug court to DUI court, it, it's basically the same program but different. So it's, it's the same require of intensity and treatment and accountability, um, but we're just meeting different populations as far as DUI offenders and alcohol addicts, which is a different population than drug offenders. They require different um, therapeutics, different treatment modalities, a different, you know, and, and they're more specialized in how to uh, supervise those types of offenders. So, um, so if we get a DUI drugs, we, we would typically prefer to send them over to Superior Court. And let the drug court handle that because that's a drug issue, even though it's a drug under the influence of that drug. Yeah. And and if they have an alcohol issue, they it's better for them to send that to us. Yeah. So we try to do that. Did you have, did you have a question? Or I see you raise your hand. Maybe not. <laughs> so, okay, well, it's, we've gone a long time. So, thank you. Uh, you're welcome.